Now I've got a bit of a tough question uh, for you to start with. If you could change one event in your past, what would it be? If you could go back and redo one big decision in your life, what would it be? I'll just give you a second to think about that. I know it's a huge question, isn't it? And now I want you to think, how would your life be different now if you made that other decision? If that event had gone the other way? Would you still be here this morning? Would you still be living nearby? Would you still be married or single? Would you still be in the same job? What would be your alternative future if that one thing had changed? Well, in our chapter last week, we saw the horror of God's judgment coming on the day of the Lord. Theirs was a horrifying, terrifying future as he warned them about the judgment day to come. But we saw there was that glimmer of hope, didn't we? <clears throat> the and yet. There was hope if they would just turn from their sins and return to God. God would pardon them and forgive them. And we saw likewise that we could be pardoned and forgiven if we would just turn to God and turn from our sins. Now it's even in our passage this week that in the first verse they heeded Joel's warning. And what follows in the rest of the passage is an alternative future. That one decision to turn has changed everything. So it's now no longer a terrifying horror of God's judgment but a wonderful, plentiful future with the locusts gone. They pleaded for mercy to God, and his answer is shown in verse 18 and the verses that follow. His answer to their pleas for mercy is the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. He shows pity for them and is jealous for them. Not in a nasty way, the way that jealousy can be, but in a way that says, they're mine. They belong to me. So how does God show mercy to his people? Well, he gives them three answers to their pleas for mercy. The first one is restoration in the short term in verses 18 to 25. Let me just read those to you again. If my throat will hang out, uh, stay. (laughs) Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. I'll pause there, actually, but... uh, Do you see there's a sort of rewinding of what's going on? Do you ever wish there was a rewind button in your life so you could go back and redo those things? Or an undo button, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? I love pressing undo on the computer when I've done something wrong. Well, here God hits the rewind button. He he hits the undo button. All that he has done through sending the locusts is undone. All the things that we saw that had disappeared in chapter 1 are now restored. The grain, the wine, the oil... Their hunger uh, from the famine has now turned to satisfaction. God had made them the reproach of the nations. They looked at them in horror. But now the reproach is taken away. 
And even the locusts themselves are are driven into the sea. It's reminiscent, really, of when God sent locusts on Egypt in judgment. What did he do at the end? Well, Exodus 10, 19, it's on the back of your notice sheets. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. See, he does the same thing, lifts the judgment from the land. Now, the northerner here is almost certainly a reference to the locusts. Locusts, though, confusingly, normally came from the south to attack. Um, But it's not unheard of for them to come from the north. But it's probable by this point the word northerner, now we're obviously quite a few of us are northerners here this morning, so you've got to be be careful. But um, northerners often would take on the, the idea of being an invader, since Israel, if it got invaded, nearly always got invaded from the north. It's a bit like our term Norman. So the Normans were the the Vikings, weren't they? But actually, when uh, William the Conqueror came, he was a Norman, but he came from the south. So it might be that they've just sort of attached this word. But either way, it's saying that the the northerner has been driven far away, the invader, the attacker. And so dead is the swarm that their carcasses will make this huge stink. Apparently, this is quite common after a locust... Uh, swarm that actually one of the problems you have is actually getting rid of these billions and billions of locusts that have come it's a big smell for a big army but it means that all is undone they're totally destroyed and the three things that were affected by the locust storm are told the reverse of what they were to do in chapter 1 so have a look in uh, verse 21 onwards fear not O land be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The land that was to tremble and mourn before, if you remember in chapter 1, is now to take courage and be glad and rejoice. The beasts of the field that groan to the Lord are no longer to fear. The grass is now green. The trees are now bearing fruit in abundance. They can enjoy their lives again. And the children of Zion who are told to mourn and weep are now told to rejoice. The Lord has brought them rain in season as before. A reminder in a little way of the promises God made to Noah when he promised that those things would continue, that he would send the rains and the seasons. And the key word really here, or the key words, is as before. This is what he's promising. The bread will be back as the threshing floors are filled with grain. The wine and the oil will be back as the vats overflow. The years that were lost to the locusts will be restored. God himself will restore the years that his army has taken. Now the word there, restore, is actually a word that we use in commerce. It would have been used in commerce in those days as well. It's that word for when you get a refund. So you know, I went and did some DIY at the weekend, got the wrong things, as you always do, don't you, the first time. Had to take them back, got a refund. But that's the, the word here, to restore is to refund. He's saying that they won't lose out because of what has happened. He will pay them back. Things will be as they were before. Now I should say at this point, this is a promise for the Israelites and their locusts. 
In our life, it doesn't quite work as simply, does it? God does promise us in this life a material rewind and a restoration if we return in repentance to him. That said, I think it is generally true that when we turn away from sin, our lives do get better in some ways, if you think about it. Because sin is not just an offence to God, sin is something destructive, isn't it? It destroys relationships, it destroys lives, it destroys peace. As we turn from sin, we should expect in some senses that things will get better as we turn from those destructive things. But on the other hand, we'll face tough decisions, we'll face opposition. But there is always benefit in turning from sin. In the end, though, what this really pictures is an inward rewind and restoration. There is a rewind and restoration that God promises, but it's an inward one. As he brings us new life as we turn to him. As he makes us a new creation as we turn to him. As he restores our relationship to himself as we turn to him. But that's not immediately obvious, is it, in the, in the opening verses? But the passage sort of keeps getting deeper and deeper and further and further as you go through. His vision goes further than the material now. Things won't just be restored. Things will get even better than they were before. The second answer is absolution in the long term. Absolution in the long term. Let me read you verses 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none other and my people shall never again be put to shame. This is two short verses finished off with that same refrain and my people shall never again be put to shame. It seems less like material blessing that he's promising here and something bigger, something more lasting. It begins by talking food, doesn't it? But that food ends in satisfaction and praise to the Lord, their God. The God who has dwelt, dealt wondrously with them. Verse 27 sounds like it comes straight out of the book of Exodus, doesn't it? They shall know that he is among them. They shall know that he is God and there is no other. What's promising here is an end to idolatry that has dogged Israel from its early days. The presence of God in their midst. That's something huge, isn't it? How could God dwell with his people? This is bigger than just getting oil and grain. This is a living relationship with the living God. And again and again, that refrain, and my people shall never be put to shame. You see, these verses begin to form a bridge to the second part of our passage. We begin to see further from Joel's day into the future. Never again be put to shame. If that was purely material, then it can't be true. Whenever Joel was written, if you remember in the first week we said it was unsure exactly when it happened... But everybody agrees that it was before the Romans took over in Israel and effectively made them a vassal state. The Israelites were humiliated and a foreign king put over them after this was written. If we take this promise and lump it with the material blessings that to return after the locust plague, then it can't be true. 
Yet, if this looks further and deeper, it can be true. The Apostle Paul, quoting another part of the Old Testament in Romans 10, Romans 10, 11, says this, For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him, the Lord Jesus, will not be put to shame. There is a sense, isn't there, in which every believer in Christ ultimately will not be put to shame. Whatever happens to them on earth, they will never be put to shame before the throne of heaven. They will be vindicated, shown to have been right all along. Whatever trials, whatever ridicules we faced on earth. And it's a promise that sustains us, if you think about it. That's what it's, it's talking about, to sustain us. Through every snicker, when people laugh at us. Through every bad joke that's made at our expense. Through every patronising comment on social media. Well, these idiots believe that there were penguins on the ark, or that sort of thing. It sustains us through that. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Or in our passage, and my people will never again be put to shame. It's looking forward. It's seeing to our time. And the vision at the end doesn't stop there, does it, in Joel? It goes even further, stretching right to the very last day, the day of the Lord, the big theme in the book of Joel. His third answer... After restoration in the short term, absolution in the long term. And then lastly, salvation in the last days. Have a look at 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem... There shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. We get the time setting from this shown by the sun uh, turning to darkness and the moon to blood. So please don't be thinking about last week's blood moon, you know, pictures of the, uh, uh, I nearly nearly got a picture of the clock tower in Otley with the blood moon behind it. But uh, it's not talking about that, it's talking about the end. It's the same language that's been used in 2 verse 10 to speak of the end. It's the same language as in Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. So listen to this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So there a clue again, this is the last days that we're talking about here. If that wasn't a big enough clue, then actually the New Testament tells us that this is talking about the last days. So if you've got a Bible, if you turn to Acts 2. You see the page numbers up there on the screen. It's worth staying there because this whole passage is quoted in Acts 2. So you don't need to turn back. 
in Acts 2, it starts off by saying, but this, uh, verse 16, but this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days there shall be, God declares. So, even though it's not there in the passage in Joel, actually the New Testament tells us this really is the last days, this is what it's talking about. So, I say this so that we can see that the other God of God's promises deal with those sort of mini days of the Lord that we talked about. You know, little restorations after the locusts and after big things had happened. But here now, this deals with the day of the Lord, capital D, capital L. What provision has God made for the salvation on his people on, on the big day, on the last day? Well, his plan, we're told, is the pouring out of his spirit on all kinds of people. On flesh, reminding us of that miracle in a Genesis scale where God breathed his spirit into flesh and brought it to life. What happens as God pours out his spirits? Well, the sons and the daughters, men and women, old and young, from the lowest to the highest, all have the spirit poured out on them. His spirit will be upon all kinds of people without distinction of class or gender or age. There'll be a levelling of the people as the spirit is poured out on all. All alike share in one spirit. What will accompany this? Well, we see uh, in uh, uh, in the verses there that um, in verse 18, uh, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I shall pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. There's all those speaking of visions and dreams. It will be accompanied by widespread prophecy. All these different kinds of people will prophesy. We'll come to what that means in a moment. The other thing that accompanies the pouring out of the Spirit is widespread salvation. You see that? So, uh, verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's easy to miss, isn't it? But think Old Testament. Where is the idea that great salvation will be accessible to all? Where is the idea that God will, will save people who call on him? Whoever they are. Actually, the Old Testament tends to focus just on one people, doesn't it? But here it's everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an idea that becomes clearer as the Old Testament goes on. But here we have one of the clearest expressions of it uh, of, of anywhere. So clear, you'd probably reckon it was in the book of Romans, wouldn't you? Because actually Paul does quote it in the book of Romans. Romans 10.13 on the back of your notice sheets. Uh, it's right there, all who call upon the name of the Lord uh, shall be saved. Right after he quotes the previous verses uh, from Joel. Joel is clearly in mind here. So all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The door is open in a way that it doesn't seem to have been open in the past here in these last days. Paul in the verses is in between clearly understands it as meaning that salvation has gone global as he talks about Jew and Gentile. Uh, being included in Romans 10. So what is prophesied here is an evangelistic explosion, really, as the gospel goes global. So it's no surprise then that this passage really appears in Acts 2, is it? If you think about it, the great missionary book of the Bible. Now I'm not planning to preach on the whole passage in Acts 2, you have to save that for a series in Acts. 
But can I just pick out a few things and just point you to the verses in Acts 2 that help us understand how the New Testament (laughs) sees that passage in Joel that we're looking at? The first thing to note is that Scripture gives us the fulfilment of the passage in Joel. Scripture gives us the fulfilment of the passage in Joel. We aren't free to say it means something else, because Scripture tells us that this was fulfilled at the event surrounding Pentecost. So Acts 2.14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Not like what was uh, uttered through Joel. Not similar to. This is it. So it's like you're saying, you know what Joel talked about? Well, it's now happening. Now it's here. So we can't sort of run fast and loose with what we think about what Joel is saying. He's saying it's fulfilled here in Acts chapter 2. Secondly then, we are living in this age that he talks about. We are living in the age that he talks about. The last days, the day of the Lord. Now I'm not wanting to mislead you here, let me be crystal clear. When I say that we're living in the day of the Lord, I'm not saying that Jesus has already returned. That's still to happen. I'm not saying that we are living after the end of time. That is still to happen. What I am saying is that the end has begun. It began in the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. And that includes what's happening here, the pouring out of the spirit which was to happen in the last days. See, what the prophets saw as a day is actually a series of days, culminating in a final day, the day of the Lord, judgment day proper. It's like the prophets sort of saw it a bit bit like this. This is the best way I can sort of explain it. If you imagine, sort of end on, like the day is just a line. This is the day of the Lord. When actually it's more like this. It's just like they've looked at it end on. Actually, it's a much longer uh, period of time. Some people use the idea of mountains that you sort of look and you think there's one mountain. And then the closer you get to it, you realise actually it's a range of mountains that you can see. Actually, we are living in that day as it's stretched out for the past 2,000 years. It's much longer than they probably thought. Uh, But the New Testament shows us that this is what is happening. This is the day of the Lord, awaiting that final day. But it means that what is true of that day is true in some way of our time. We live in the days that Joel predicted, that the, the Joel prophesied. So what he's talking about here is really important for us, isn't it? So the third thing we see from Acts is the prophecy that Joel talks about as prophecy is what the disciples are doing. The prophecy that Joel talks about is what the disciples are doing. Now I know there'll be a variety of opinions uh, in the room about this, but I want you to forget all you know for a second uh, about what is happening as they speak uh, on the day of Pentecost, as they uh, talk in all those different languages. Just take a second to think, what are the disciples actually doing? So we normally say things like speaking in tongues, but what are they actually doing? What is the miracle that is going on here? What they are doing is they are speaking in foreign languages that they've not learnt. 
Have a look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That word tongue there is just the normal word for language. Uh, So mother tongue, uh, you'd say in English, it's just another way of saying it. In French, it is the same word, long. Uh, It's tongue and language as well. They're speaking in foreign languages that they've not uh, learned. We know that they're real languages because in verse 6, people understand them as they speak in their own language. So they're speaking in, in foreign languages. That's what's happening here in Acts. I'm not saying that's what's happening elsewhere in the Bible when similar phrases are used. But here in Acts, it's clear they're speaking in foreign languages. What is it that they're saying? We'll have a look at verse 11. So it lists off all the groups that are there. Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What they're actually doing in the foreign languages is proclaiming the mighty works of God. Now, given the context, it's unlikely, isn't it, that they're talking about the Exodus or or something that happened in the Old Testament. Now, this is just days after Jesus has risen from the dead. What they're talking about here is Jesus' death and resurrection. They were preaching the gospel to people in the power of the Spirit, as the Spirit enabled them as they spoke. So what is meant in Joel by prophecy? Well, as I said at the beginning of this section, we understand it by its fulfilment. The the Bible itself tells us what this means. It means the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel. The spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel. That's what Joel foresaw in the Old Testament as he looked off into the distant future. Now, I'm not saying that that exhausts the meaning of the word prophecy. But it certainly explains why the pouring out of the Spirit goes hand in hand with the gospel going global. Think about it. The Spirit here is empowering his people to preach the gospel to all the world. To the extent that he's even given them the ability to speak in foreign languages. Now, speaking as someone who's learned a foreign language, that's a massive shortcut, isn't it, for global mission? I know missionaries who spent years trying to learn a native language where there's not even an alphabet. This is a massive shortcut. If the gospel is going to go global, well, here is the Spirit doing that work, empowering his people to preach the gospel. Now, the Spirit may not so obviously grant language learning abilities so blatantly as he did here... But he's making a massive statement, isn't he, that the gospel is for all nations as he allows them to speak in other tongues, in other languages. He doesn't do that necessarily for us now, but he does still enable us for spirit-powered gospel proclamation. He's still poured out on all flesh that hasn't stopped since Pentecost. He is with every believer, bringing new life to their flesh. Equipping and empowering them to bear witness to Jesus. After all, isn't that why the Spirit was sent? If you just turn over the page, Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit was sent to empower us for mission. 
so that we might go to the ends of the earth. So the last days are a time when the gospel is to go global, that many might call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But as Paul says after quoting these verses in Romans 10, in Romans 10, 14 and 15, he says, How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, we have been sent. We have the great commission, don't we? The spirit has been poured out onto us. He empowers us where we feel powerless. He equips us where we feel unprepared. The fact that we have the spirit living within us as Christians means that we are on mission. Meaning that we take the gospel absolutely everywhere. See, prophecy in Joel is doing what the disciples were doing and we are to do it too. Because we live in the last days. And we too have had the spirit poured out on us. The final thing I want us to see from uh, Joel, uh, from Acts, though, as we look at this passage from Joel, is the response. The response to what is happening is repentance. Have a look at 37. Uh, sorry. Um, yes, 37 uh, to 39. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to, the Lord our God calls to himself. See, it's interesting, isn't it? The response to the passage preached on Joel is to repent. Because if these things are happening then the day of the Lord is upon us. The door is opened, but the time is short. He's saying to them, turn while you still can. Repent while you still have opportunity. Now, repentance is not a one-off thing. We sometimes think of this as a sort of, yeah, I've, I've done that. Actually, it's an ongoing thing. But it does have a starting point. At some point, you need to start repenting, but it carries on. Everyone in this room needs to repent because the day of the Lord is here. We need to keep repenting, turning our heart away from sin and to God. Who is this for? It's for everyone. And it's for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This fits with the final words of Joel, which interestingly Peter doesn't quote. The end of Joel, I'll just read it to you to save you turn it back. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So you get the sort of flip. There are those who call on the Lord, and there are those whom the Lord calls. But notice, even though there is this idea of the Lord calling certain people, do these people in Acts sit around and think, oh, has the Lord called me, or am I calling on the Lord? Which is it? No, they understood, didn't they? They got on with it. And 3,000 souls repented and were baptised. They received the Spirit as promised and they joined the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The fact that God calls people to himself is not cause to philosophise. 
like, you know, think about philosophy and stuff. It's a reason to come to him. If God calls people, it means that we have an opportunity to come. He's calling people to come to him in faith and repentance. Are we doing that? Are we coming to him in faith and repentance? Peter here totally believes that God calls people and it spurs him not to keep quiet and mind his own business. It causes him to preach the gospel, spirit-powered gospel proclamation. If God is calling people, is, is Peter's thought, then I need to tell them. How will they hear without someone preaching to them? So be glad in the gospel and preach it to others. This morning, God is still calling people to himself. If you've never turned to the Lord in repentance, if you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus alone, then turn. Turn this morning. That's the correct response to what we see. The end is near because we've already seen that the end has come in one way. The end is upon us, but the door is still open. There is still time. But I can't guarantee you it will still be open tomorrow. Turn. Turn now from your old ways and put your trust in the Lord Jesus alone. He has taken God's wrath, God's justice, God's judgment. And if you will not ask him to take it for you, you will have to face it yourself. And as we saw in the previous chapters, there's no chance of escape. So turn now, receive the Holy Spirit, join the mission, join the family of God, receive forgiveness for your sins. You see, the wonderful thing with this is there's an alternative future for us, isn't there? One of devotion to the Lord Jesus here, followed by eternity with him in that glorious future that he's prepared for us. Do you want to be part of that? Well, turn. And if you have turned, keep turning to the Lord. Keep turning from your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for sending him to us. Father, to to change us, to uh, mould us, to make us more like your son. And Father, to put us on mission. And Father, thank you that it does equip us to do what you ask us to do. Father, thank you that you don't ask us and then throw us in at the deep end. But Father, you equip us for what you ask us to do. So Father, pray that we be bold in that spirit-empowered mission that we have. And Father, pray that many would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.